inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Good morning. You are listening to Outlook this morning on Radio Western 94.9 or by podcast at any old time of the day. And we are back still in July. If, if it's on the radio, we're airing on Radio Western there. Here it is July and it is uh, Disability Pride Month. Good morning, Brian. How are you? Hi, not too bad. This may be morning or maybe any time if you're listening as a podcast, which we are also available on all podcast services, just search for Outlook on Radio Western. And we're happy to be back today with a, another guest. This is a, an exciting one. Somebody I actually haven't connected with actually since we both went to Mira in Quebec to receive guide dogs exactly 20 years ago, back in the summer of 2001. So before we speak with our guest today named Laura Bain, we're going to play a clip here from 20 years ago, as we've mentioned Carrie on this show before, I used to love to tape a lot when I was a, when I was a kid on uh, old Walkmans and tape recorders and stuff like that to mm-hmm. preserve some memories from those times. And it just so happens that exactly 20 years ago, we were in Quebec together getting our first guide dogs at the time. And so I thought I'd start things off with a little clip from back in 2001. You would be like, when you were walking the rocks, whatever you said he was looking at me. Yeah, and then back at the picnic table, he came and sat beside me. And... Because they know you, right? Yeah, well, I, I was proud of them. Like, I don't know. And she's a Labrinese, too, eh? Just yeah. Know that. But, uh... I tried her first, day, like, when we were trying to dog the kennel one time, and they said that she was Labrinese. But then I asked you, and you said a lab, so... Well, I think somebody definitely told me she was a lab. Look at that. But they probably just didn't. Well, it's all for the best of it, I guess. This guy's a bit better, but he's like no good at like his allergies and stopping. Or just stuff without hopping up. Like, it just seems so weird how like you know Jesse changed Wednesday, I changed Thursday, and I changed Friday. I know. And how they gave you a So a blast from the past there, way back 20 years ago. Hard to believe how time flies like that. Who was that? Yeah, who who was that, that on those clips? That wasn't me. No. You, you were actually there too, but three years earlier, getting your guide dog back in 1998. And so in that clip, some of it may have been hard to hear, but um, in that clip, you can hear me at 14 <laughs> years of age. And you can also hear our guest who is on today's show. Welcome, Laura Bain to Outlook. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's great to be here. And that was such a good um, memory for me to hear that. You know, it's funny, like, and I, I don't mean any offense by this, but when I first heard it, when I, I heard the first voice, which is your voice, I thought, is that me? Because I, I couldn't <laughs> tell us apart because we sound so different, right? We're so young sounding, but it really just brought back 
like a visceral memory of that time and even like remembering the fabric of the coach and the room that we were in. So um, yeah, I'm, I haven't taken a lot of audio recordings myself over the years, but I think it's a really uh, valuable thing listening back to that really brings back the memories. And that's what I love about audio as a writer. It does the same with pictures for some people, sighted people, right? It can help you um, remember memory uh, experiences that maybe you you did forget, like you said, some of the very very um, sensory type details. And then as soon as you see the picture um, and you study it for a while, or you listen to yourself, then you can jump back into the conversation you were having at that time, and you can remember yourself sitting on that couch, and you can almost feel it. So. Yeah. And um, Brian, I was looking back, I thought I had some, some sketch drawings that I had done at that time, because um, I had sort of forgotten that I, I used to do that at that age in high school is, is do some, some drawings like with, with pencils. And I had one of you from that time sitting at a table at a restaurant and I could, um, you know, the umbrella over you and stuff. And it, it really just reminded me of when we were in uh, St. Hyacinth or St. Hyacinth and, and uh, oh, no getting way. our guide dogs and had gone gone into town that day to like have the city experience oh that's so cool hmm. yeah carrie i think that's a really great point about how those those memories you you hear a clip or you look at a photo and then it just sparks these memories that you haven't thought about in years and years and actually i believe so that clip was a little bit hard to hear we have one more clip i'll be playing in the second half that's a bit clearer but that was actually i believe we were actually in my in my room at the time not in the living room um but again, it's ah, okay. I mean, it's it's only been twenty years, so. Um, <laughs> but that's but, what's funny too is that two people can be picturing that scene in different, two different, total different ways, and that's fine, right? That's just how it is in each person's mind. So, but yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think the only way I knew that is I I was checking a few tapes. Actually, I didn't have time to go through because I made I guess twenty. <laughs> 90 minute tapes so 30 hours of, of stuff so I only had a couple hours here to quickly jump through them and try and find a clip and I haven't heard these in years so um, that one was a little bit harder to hear but before it I, I did say that we were in my room so I believe we were and that clip sort of sort of shows us being a little bit more casual it was in the evening I think after some of the roots and stuff that we'd done and that one was also interesting because we talked we were talking a lot about people switching dogs and that was a week where I believe at least four or five of us got new dogs like in a row. Like one day I, my, I switched from Maracas was my original dog and I switched to Kigali who ended up being the dog that I got. Before we get back into, we like to do a bit of an interview from, from the very beginning up to today. But I thought since we're talking here about Mira and guide dogs in that summer, maybe Laura, if you could just speak a little bit to start off here about how you decided to get a guide dog in the first place, what that was like for you, and what you do remember from that summer of 2001 and how the whole experience was for you. Yeah, sure. Um, and I, you know, it is it is sort of hard to remember. And I guess that's the problem with eyewitness accounts is I would have said, oh, yeah, we were definitely in the living room. Nope, we were not. Um, but uh, I, I think I had had Louisiane as my first dog when I was there, uh, Lucy for short, who I was really... Um, uh, almost immediately bonded with, but um, in the opinion of the trainer, had not been a great match with me after us working together for a week or two. So they switched me to another dog whose name I can't remember. And then I think the third dog um, I was switched to was was Togo, who was a dog I went home with, but um, it didn't work out for me. And and you know, it's a good point. I forget the percentage. It is. It's a fairly like 
it's a, it's not the majority, but there is a significant number of people who get that guide dogs that it, it doesn't work out. So I had Togo for uh, a couple of months before deciding it, it wasn't the right thing for me at that time in my life. But, um, you know, we are going back 20 years and I think we'll, we'll probably, as you say, like we'll end up going back further into my eye condition and my di- diagnosis and all that, which was at a very young age. But I really couldn't tell you exactly what went into that decision. I think I mostly wanted a dog Um, there may have been, I may have somewhat been struggling with my cane, uh, you know, with high school, I would have been going into grade 11. I know I chose Mira at that time because they were one of the only schools, if not the only school that would admit people that young into the guide dog program. Um, so I don't think that I had put the amount of thought into it that I did actually when I went for a second guide dog in my twenties or that I would now put into the decision to to get a guide dog Mm. yeah well it is interesting to think about because we were all so young then and and that's what carrie you too when you went i think mira as far as i'm aware was the only school in canada that would give dogs to people under a certain age so it was for all of us it was a it's a big decision to be making as a teenager and it's interesting too because we never we never really kept in touch after that this was before the days of facebook and all of that kind of stuff and um, Carrie, you you made a great connection with someone from your guide dog experience, Eric, who we've had on this show before. Um, so it's kind of interesting that we were in that, that class, and I think there was one, I believe there was just one student who didn't get a dog right away in that summer, that it just wasn't right. But after we leave and we all had the dogs, I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind that, oh, somebody like Laura in your situation, you might go home and start using the dog and it might still not work out. That never really... I kind of assumed, oh, everyone got their dogs now and that's it sort of thing. So it's interesting how you do get back into your own environment. And I don't know, it's just it's a it's quite a process to, to go through at that age. And yeah, it's, it was just it's quite the experience to, to think about and other people's perspectives on how that time went. And I, I think also, you know, Brian, are you about three years younger than me? So I'm 36 right now. Yeah, I just turned well, I turned 34 couple months ago so two years I think yeah right so it seems like nothing now but I feel like at that time um you know because perhaps you could have kept in touch on the phone and I certainly felt like we were friends when we were at Mira but it seems like a bigger age difference between like 13 14 and 16 at that time as well yeah that's a really great point because I was thinking about that too and I feel like I was also I I was at a weird point in, in life because there was there was one one person in our class um, who I haven't kept I haven't kept up with anyone from from that time even though like you say when we were there it w- we were there for a month straight which looking back on it that seems like a long time to be away from home especially for me I was fourteen so that was the first time I'd left home for that long and to go all the way to Quebec where French I believe Laura you were talking uh, recently over Messenger there that you were studying a bit of French then so m- maybe that wasn't as overwhelming for you but for me that and then the fact that um, so there was someone in our class that was around 10, I think. And then there was me that was 14. And then, you know, you were a couple years older. And y- you do make a really good point there that I feel like it just we were all kind of at different s- spots in our lives. And while it seems weird to say at that age, it, there is quite a difference. And I think I was sort of in between. I hadn't, you know, quite hit puberty yet, but I wasn't I wasn't like <laughs> too young either. So it was just a, it was a weird sort of dynamic thinking back. But I do remember it was a it was a really fun time overall, and we did have a lot of fun hanging out. So I believe we met Laura, but I I think it might have just been like I did come visit Brian that summer, but yeah. 
But yeah, we're all right. different there was, at that age. Yeah, there was there was a day where the families came. Maybe it was when people were being picked up. I can't remember. Or maybe there was like a day where the, the families could visit. I remember who you're speaking about, Brian. Um, and he had red hair. <laughs> I can't remember him either. So, um, uh, but uh, about the, the, the boy who was 10. But yeah, it, it, I was reflecting on that as well, that it really is a long time to be away from home at that age. And you really do bond with people. Um, but I think, and I think today we would keep in touch. Um, but back then, you know, there, we didn't have cell phones and we, I at least didn't have internet in my home. So it would have had to have been like old school calling people. I know. I, I did find a part on one of the tapes where we were sort of taking down pe- each other's addresses or something. And I brought out my old Braille and speak. <laughs> and was trying to type stuff down and and yeah just I think again like you say we just it was right before the internet really broke out and people were you know had access to it on a regular basis as much so it was kind of at that awkward time where keeping up with someone you'd either have to go back to snail mail or a phone call I guess but yeah it just it wasn't obviously like today and also just being a bit older too I think would make make a difference yeah for sure yeah, because every time something like that ends, right, everybody is, you've been so close quarters for so long, it feels like, and gone through such an experience, you're like, you know, rushing around, taking down everybody's contact information, but that's no guarantee of who you'll actually end up staying in touch with. And it has to do with a lot of different reasons. Yeah, the age and... And another thing everything. that came up in that clip was me talking about dog switching. And I could just tell by listening to that clip and even hearing a few other things from the tapes that... Even that, like we talk about people connecting with a dog, you would connect so quickly. Like I think I had my first one, Maracas, for about a week, and when I switched to Kigali, I was I was sad, I was crushed, I was I was already mm-hmm. attached to this dog that I'd only known for a week, and the fact you know that we all all made that switch around the same time there, it's just it's a lot of adjusting and um, just being at that age too is a it's really just interesting I think for me to think about. I I don't like to be nostalgic too much because I try to look into the future and, and live in the moment more so than living in the past. But every now and again, it's neat to go back and, and think about those times. And mm-hmm. so I guess maybe we'll, we'll, we'll go back now then um, earlier than that. And if you could talk about growing up about your childhood, you're, you're calling in from Halifax. And I believe, is that also where you were born and talk a little bit about your, your childhood and your, your eye condition and, schooling growing up too, how that was with, with your site. I always remembered when we were at Mira and you kind of made some uh, comments earlier that would suggest so that you, you always had a bit of vision and maybe you and Carrie could c- relate on that to some degree, um, whereas my vision's never changed. I've only had light perception since birth. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think that that is part of what has made uh, the decision about getting a guide dog a lot more complicated for me. I think that when you do have partial sight um there are times when maybe you you need a dog and times when you don't need a dog and and maybe that's something I hadn't fully taken into consideration at at 16 but certainly was a big a big factor in things not working out and um for myself now I have made the decision that I wouldn't want to try for another dog unless I I really had very little usable vision and still at this age of 36 I would say I have significant usable vision even though um I also have a significant um, level of vision loss and I use, um, I'm a screen reader user. I use a white cane full time and have for a very long time. Um, but I still have um, significant vision to navigate when I'm out walking that I can a lot of times see people coming toward me and see where the curbs are and see the lights changing and stuff. So I think that makes it more complicated when you're, 
looking at, at having a guide dog. So yeah, to go back, um, I, I grew up in a community just about 20 minutes outside of Halifax called Herring Cove, a smaller kind of suburban community. Um, and I have retinitis. Well, <laughs> this is another thing we can also get into. I, I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. I've had genetic testing in recent years that has, has sort of thrown that into question. Um, but my, my diagnosis has been retinitis pigmentosa, which uh, I received at age four. Um, I was the oldest child in my family. So my mom didn't really know what was typical. And uh, it was when I started going to a babysitter around age two or three that they noticed maybe something was going on with my vision. Um, so then, you know, it's sort of hard to, to diagnose a really young child um, who has some vision. So, so mm-hmm. at age four was, was when I got that diagnosis. And um, then I went to integrated schooling, as I know both of you guys did, um, right. primary through grade 12. And uh, there is a school here. It was formerly the Halifax School for the Blind when I was school-aged, uh, and now it's called APSI, Atlantic Provinces Special Education Authority. Oh. And you, so it was sort of in between. I would say I was just a couple of years too young for going there full-time or going there for year-long placements. So I would go regularly for one- or two-week placements every year at that school. So that would be to learn specific skills like orientation and mobility or uh, independent living skills. So that was a pretty big part of my childhood was, was those weeks. Sometimes it would be up to two or three weeks a year that I would, would be out of the public school system and living in residence at the, at the school for the blind, as we called it in Halifax. Um, but mainly mm-hmm. I was, I was, I was mainstreamed. I was in- integrated, um, which was, uh, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on, on integrated schooling. It had, had positives and it had negatives and I'm I'm really not sure what the best best thing is. I think it's really hard to say if you've never gone to a segregated school, whether that would be a better experience and vice versa. If you've never been been integrated, it's hard to say whether that would be a better experience. Um, I found it challenging. I would say that I did not have a lot of my needs met in school for whatever reason, I did have an itinerary teacher who I got along with really well, who came to see me once a week the whole time I was in school, but I did end up uh, failing in grade eight uh, and also in grade 11. So um, I think that that clearly my, my needs weren't, weren't being met and maybe wasn't being introduced to uh, some extracurricular activities. I always wonder if I had, gone to a separate school, um, like a school for the blind, if I would have maybe been more involved in parasports or maybe um, gone further in terms of like playing music and things like that. But you, you really don't know what your experience would, would be like, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk about that all the time about, um, you know, people who have been at those schools, some of them say that, you know, well, without that being at that school, I never would have become the athletic self, that part of me that I am, um, because, you know, they offered goalball and all these things. And it's just, it wasn't the same kind of experience offered in um, mainstream school at, in gym class and things. So, you know, stuff like in, where, whether it's physical education or science, wherever you might struggle a little bit, but that's interesting that you had a itinerant teacher once a week and the rest of the time you were on your own, even though you did have quite a bit of usable vision. 
but that you still struggled with that sort of situation. So it also comes down to I feel like certain areas and certain school boards have have more support um, teachers and stuff like that on than others. But it also comes down to not having like still having enough usable vision, but not completely sighted. So it's you're sort of in that middle ground, which I think also makes it more difficult because a lot of people don't think that you need an, as much support. Um, so it's it's I think it's a balance, and it 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 would seem to be a little bit trickier if if you aren't you know totally blind or completely sighted if you're sort of in that gray area in between. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point, and I think that. Um that was certainly a factor that it was challenging for people, you know, teachers to know how much I could see. And I think um, for a number of reasons, I kind of developed a pretty bad attitude and was one of those students who was kind of in the back of the class sketching on my notebook. Maybe I had headphones in and, and it's really hard to distinguish between someone who maybe is doing that because they can't see the board and, and they're embarrassed about that versus just not wanting to participate. Mm-hmm. And so I would say I sort of got categorized as, as, as the latter there when, you know, a lot of it was just, just really struggling and not having, not feeling I had access to the material. And definitely I experienced a lot of bullying, um, sort of the whole time through kindergarten to 12. Um, although, you know, of course I also feel that all of those experiences that I've, I've had have, have shaped me into the person I've become. So it's not that I would would want to go back and and undo any of that but um i would say that it there were certainly aspects of of my childhood and my time going through school that were difficult mm-hmm. yeah i'm really glad that you you brought all that up because it's something we we like to ask all of our guests because everyone does have a different experience and for someone like me i i, I sometimes i feel like ideally i'm not and this is a discussion carrie that we're planning to do more um episodes on later on in the year is the whole idea of the segregated blind school school for the blind comparing to integrated and in my personal opinion I still I don't like the idea of segregated I think we're trying to be more inclusive in our society and I think by doing that we're kind of going backwards but at the same time it's not that simple because integration is great if you have the support and if it is inclusive and you are getting all of the services but a lot of times people aren't so it is still a is a tough tough question and I think Again, if, if you haven't experienced one or the other, then it's hard to comment on, on uh, what would be better or worse. So it's, there's so many factors there. Yeah, and I think to move backward, I think you're right that it is a move backward at this point to move into segregated schooling because I think that we are becoming more inclusive and more understanding as a society. And I think the experience that I would have now going through school is probably different than the experience that I would have had say 30 years ago um, in school, I felt like my weeks at APSI, it was like a week of not being bullied and a week of, of not missing things. And so it was really wonderful. I, I, I would have chosen at that time to have gone to APSI full time. Um, but yeah, when I, I, I've met some younger people now who are going to school and it's very different, you know, their experience in gym class is different from mine. They weren't just put out there on the dodgeball court or, you know, put out there with a racket to, to play badminton or whatever, there are actual adaptations that are, are being made. And so I think that ideally, yes, like um, integration is, is probably for the best, but it has to be, um, has to truly be inclusive and not just sort of left out there to fend for yourself. Yeah. So about your blindness then, um, you said usable vision. So what, has it been consistent or has it changed over the years? And so, cause you mentioned sketching. So 
you're, um, but you use a cane, right? This is what confuses people is they can't imagine that there is such an in-between um, either whether you can see and you ha- you don't need a cane or you can't and you do it's right. Um, where has that been for you? You, you, are you into art generally or sketching specifically or? Yeah. And, and good question. I would say, what can you see has been one of my most dreaded questions. Mm-hmm. That it's a tough and one. it doesn't even, it doesn't even have to be specifically, what do you see? It's just like it, it, some, some markers, whether it's color or you're colorblind or you, what, like some things you do do that, um, that you're able to do because you have a bit of vision, anything that explains it. Yeah. Like since even, you know, 20 years ago, since we're playing those clips from, from Mira back in 2001, like, has there been a change, a big noticeable change since then, since 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, I get what you guys mean. I, I just, I agree that the, the, the general public does kind of struggle with that, with that in between. So I, I tend to get mm-hmm. that question a lot, but, um, I have always had a significant visual impairment, um, you know, since I was a child, uh, it is deteriorate. It is deteriorating. I would say my sight has gotten worse, uh, over my lifetime, but not really at the rate that I anticipated when I was a child. So I think when I was, was very young, I was told, Oh, you'll, you'll be blind when you're an adult. And now I'm 36 and I still have some vision. So, um, I, I didn't actually expect that. Um, but, you know, and and when your vision is deteriorating so slowly, it's, it can be hard to notice those changes, but you notice it in terms mm-hmm. of activity. So when I look back mm-hmm. and I see that I was sketching you at age 16, Brian, that's not really something that I would do now um, or have done in, in 20 years, but, but you don't necessarily think about those changes or, you know, maybe I've noticed that I, I used to go independently into grocery stores and that's something that is really overwhelming for me to do now or sort of the transition from when I was in school, I was mainly a print user with um, either a magnifying glass or, or a CCTV was, was one of the main pieces of equipment I use, which um, enlarges the text on a screen. It's not a, it's not a computer, but it's like a, it's a sort of an electronic magnifier thing. Um, and now I would struggle to read any volume of text like that. So I got rid of my CCTV maybe a decade ago and have mostly been a, like a Zoom text slash JAWS slash voiceover user. Hmm. Uh, so when I'm out walking, which I do a lot of walking, I, well, I, I should say I, I have, I have very severe tunnel vision. So I think that's the main um, thing about my vision is that I have about, less than five degrees of peripheral vision so if I was looking directly at someone I could maybe see their face but not see their shoulders or anything below below that you know if I were to look at their shoes I wouldn't be able to see their upper body kind of thing so so it's it's like looking through a kind of like looking through a paper towel roll I guess if, if people don't have another reference point for what tunnel vision is like um and also uh night blindness is a big thing that goes along with RP so uh, lower lighting conditions are, are difficult for me in terms of sight. And then my central acuity is also um, uh, significantly impaired, which is not always a part of RRP. And I think uh, maybe part of, of what throws my, my diagnosis into question is that, it, you know, maybe it's a little bit more like uh, Lieber's congenital amaurosis. Which is, is that what you guys have? Yes. I was just going to say that RP is in the same family. It's very similar um, and I understand I, I, I always had tunnel vision. Um, so yeah, it's very, it's quite similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
I had genetic testing done about five years ago and they didn't actually come back with any conclusive results, um, which happens for some people. And, uh, you know, it, mm-hmm. it is, I will say emotionally interesting as to whether or not you're invested in that and, and finding out, you know, what exactly is, is causing your condition or, you know, genetic testing certainly relates to how you feel about um, the possibility of a treatment. Um, and then actually I got a phone call about a month ago from the geneticist asking if I wanted them to rerun my, my sample because they've identified many more causes of, of retinal disease. And I said, sure. And it was the same thing. Actually, it came back inconclusive. So I do have one marker for Liebers, um, but it's not, I, I, I'm going to show my lack of knowledge when it comes to genetics. Maybe you need to have a pair and I only have one. There's something like that where if they were to see this, um, they would think that that I was was cited. They they wouldn't necessarily think that that was enough to cause um, my eye condition. But she thought it was interesting that I had that, um, and perhaps could be a contributing factor in in my eye condition. But uh, yeah, not not really able to definitively say whether it was um, LCA or RP or or maybe something something else. Which when I first got that news at the time about five years ago, I I I was I was sort of crushed for just about an hour. I was really I found that really difficult. And then I realized that my entire life since I was four, I had been told that, well, you have retinitis pigmentosa and it's an incurable eye disease and it leads to total blindness. And I realized like, they don't know, they don't know what I have. Maybe I have a condition that um, is, maybe I will maintain some sight for, for my entire life, or maybe it's a condition where you hit age 40 and it starts to improve, but you know, there's a certain freedom in, in, in escaping under the weight of, that diagnosis. Not that I, I view my eye condition as necessarily a negative thing. I, I don't, but it was sort of interesting to have this label that's been put on me for my entire life kind of thrown into question. Yeah, I think that's something we we always like to talk about and everyone is different. Some people haven't even really been tested for what condition. I, you know, Some people who don't even quite know. And like you say, it doesn't even, especially if it's a rare condition or something they can't even completely diagnose, like for Carrie and I with uh, Lieber's um, we also have senior Loken syndrome, which includes our kidney failure and scoliosis. And this is such a rare syndrome. We don't know what the rest of our life could bl- bring as far as not, not even necessarily blindness, but any issues. And, and like you say, even with RP, where they say, you know, you might, you're going to lose your sight gradually. You don't know when, how that's going to pan out. And, and it's such a gradual thing that you don't always notice until you actually look back and, on 10, 15 years ago and say, oh yeah, things are are different. Um, but when it's so gradual, it's sometimes hard to, hard to measure. And there's just so much that goes into that whole discussion. So for anyone who is just tuning in here today, you're listening to Outlook on Radio Western or as a podcast. And we are speaking with Laura Bain from Halifax, actually a former AMI reporter. We will get into that after the break. And we'll be right back with more Outlook on Radio Western. Watch out for Togo. Step over. Good. Woohoo. The chair is different though. Yeah. No. Push. When you begin, the eye can see. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so when you come. Uh, excuse me. Come up in a taxi with this piece. Okay. 
when you call a taxi, it's very important to tell them that you have a guide dog because of, because of allergies and stuff like that, they're, they are permitted to refuse you to come in their taxi. So you always have to certain when you call it. You tell them you have a guide dog. Okay, um, it's very important when you're talking to someone, like today when we did drop off, to sit down your dog and when you're, and something you can do is to touch the head to make sure your dog is still there and when you're in restaurants and things like that you can do that so you know that they're not getting up and eating the fries of someone else or, you know, wandering around. Welcome back. You are listening to Outlook on Radio Western or as a podcast and coming back in there after the break if you are listening on the radio. We heard another clip from way back 20 years ago when our guest who is on today's show, Laura Bain, calling in from Halifax, and I received our first guide dogs and I think our only dogs. I did actually in my 20s try for a dog again and it also didn't work out. So that's something I'm sure we could talk about for a long time. But I did actually make two attempts 10 years apart at, at getting a, a dog. And uh, yeah, I, I, I had the second dog for about six months and it, it just, I think we just weren't, a, we weren't a good match. Um, I'm not sure if it was so much about, about whether I was a good fit for a guide dog at that time, but there were some behavioral issues with the dog that they didn't really feel were, were fixable. Um, and, um, did offer to have me come back and train with another dog, but I just, it was such a long investment, you know, with, with going through the training and, and having the two. dog for six months that. And not, not have either of them exactly. So, and unless it's something you really, really want, and you're you know it's dead set on it. I guess eventually you do just adjust with the situation. But yeah, in that clip, we did hear actually Laura was was there translating because um, this school, as I mentioned, was in Quebec, Carrie. So it was interesting for both of us going there, not speaking any French. But I believe at the time, Laura, you were in some French immersion or you were learning a bit of French. I'm not sure where you're at with that today, but I think that's awesome. It's something I've always wanted to learn and haven't taken the time aside from aside from school um like public school growing up but in that clip there you you were translating um as a lot of the people that there were french and a couple interesting things about just some tips on on what to do with our dogs when we got them home and we were talking about cab drivers which is something we i mean carrie and i have both been out of the guide dog world for so long it's hard to reflect on discrimination and things that go on but we also realize that some people do have allergies so just all of these interesting things that you deal with as a, having a guide dog. And it's like everything, like even we talk about integrated versus segregated. Some some blind people, it works better for than others. Sometimes it connects better than others. And there's just there's so many factors. So, but yeah, Carrie, I think we'll move on now from <laughs> from 20 yeah. years ago. We could, like we were saying in the break there, we could talk for a whole episode just about that. But I think we should move on to some more recent topics. Yeah, considering neither, neither um all three of us don't have guide dogs right now anyway, it's like we said. <laughs> um, Laura, you were telling us before the break about school and all the um, being integrated, but then going to get some skills for a couple weeks every year. How about when you finished high school, um, the transition, what was that like for you into the adult world? Um, well, so when I, I finished high school, I sort of um, had made a decision at some point in grade 12 about what I wanted to do, uh, which was to train as a massage therapist, a very stereotypical career choice for someone uh, who's blind or partially sighted. And so I did a two-year massage therapy program after high school um, and really enjoyed that. I would say I had very little accommodation in that course, though. So um, 
I did make it through. I struggled a little bit academically, but everything was just handwritten notes. I don't think I, ha- I don't think I even owned, I definitely did not own a laptop at that point. I might've had a desktop computer at home, but. Uh, well, it could have been blindness or I, I just thought maybe you were a big Phoebe fan on Friends. You just wanted to right. get massage, <laughs> massage like Right. Her. I think, I think, well, I think it actually, it resonated with me on a number of different levels and, and even mm-hmm. kind of, you know, it connects with, with what I'm doing now, which I'm sure we'll get into, but. Um, uh, so I worked in that industry for a, a little while and, um, then got out of it. I, uh, have actually recently just become registered again as a massage therapist. I've kept it up a little bit over the years, um, treating like family and friends. I'm actually taking a workshop this weekend, uh, for hot and cold stone massage therapy. So I'm excited about that because it's a great, it's a great side hustle. And it is something that, that I think still resonates with me and, and I would say that's one of my regrets is that I got out of that industry um, as much as I, I did. Not that I would necessarily want to be doing it full time now, but, um, you know, I, I did go a number of years without, without practicing at all. So that's what I did after high school. Um, and then I had left a clinic that I was working at and was looking for work. I ended up uh, working for one of the large uh, bank call centers. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm a bit embarrassed to say I did that for five, for five years um, in my 20s. And that was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there were things about that I liked, there were things about that that I hated. Um, it was maybe a little bit of a low point for me, I would say, in terms of feeling like I didn't have a ton of employment options, um, just mm-hmm. sort of because of where I was at in terms of my belief system and, and my disability and that sort of thing. But um, I was, I was living on my own. I moved out from home when I was 18. So, uh, I was living on my own and supporting myself. And so I decided to go back to university. I didn't really know what I wanted to study. Um, I knew something humanities related. I thought maybe I would do, uh, my undergrad in comparative religion. Cause I've always been really interested in, in studying various, various religions. Um, and I, I ended up sort of uh, falling in love with my first philosophy course that I took, um, which was critical thinking. And so uh, it graduated six years later with a, with an undergraduate degree in philosophy. <laughs> hmm. um, and, you know, we could have a very, I know like we don't want to get into a super long conversation with everything, but we could, but I will say um, I graduated summa cum laude from university. Um, and I bring that up only because, I, as I mentioned, I had failed multiple years in grade school. Like I failed in grade eight and then I, I failed in grade 11. Um, I think that's a big difference in university in terms of why I was able to be so successful and, 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 you know, graduate with honors is, is that I had the appropriate support I had for the first time um, in my life. I really had the appropriate technology. I had a computer with JAWS and Zoom text on it. I had Curve well. I had um, the ability to write my tests. Uh, rather than writing them by hand to write them on a, on a computer using a, a text. So, um, yeah, my university experience was very different than my, my grade school experience. Um, and when I finished uh, at university, I was not sure exactly what I wanted to do. I, I was experiencing uh, some deterioration in my vision. Um, I had thought about applying for law school, but I felt at that time that I needed to get better with my screen, my screen reader use. I needed to become a, a better JAWS user um, in order to take on that volume of reading, which is sort of funny because I still feel that way. And I think a lot of partially sighted people can 
or people who are having deteriorating vision can spend a lot of years kind of in that, in that period of, of trying to learn JAWS and trying to transition away from screen magnification into screen reading. But um, I had been volunteering at the food bank for a while at that time and, and was offered a temporary position um, doing sort of uh, something social work related, uh, having to do with client services. And then when that came to an end, I, I saw the position with AMI. Um, I saw the, the job posting. Someone had shared that with me. And I had not considered doing broadcasting up until that point. Uh, but I was encouraged to apply. I, I, looked, I, read, I read the posting, which it was looking for someone with a, a college or university degree in broadcasting or media. And I thought, oh, I, I am not going to meet these qualifications. But I was encouraged to apply anyway. And um, so I did. And I really knew that it was going to be the right fit for me right away when I had the interview. And I felt very confident in that. And uh, so that's what I have been doing for the last five years is I've been working as a reporter for Accessible Media or AMI TV, um, which is a national not-for-profit broadcaster that is um, centered around disability and positive portrayal of people with disability and um, kind of doing stories on and about the various disability communities across Canada. And I have recently, as you mentioned, uh, left that job. I'm about a month into having left that position because in September, I am going to be uh, going back to school at Dalhousie University here in Halifax to do my master's of social work. Wow. So you're sticking with the social work part, huh? Because, yeah, if you explore a lot of things throughout your um, your youth and things, then, yeah, it gives you a better idea of what your options could be and then helps you better settle on things. So that's exciting. Yeah, congrats um, on, on all that. Yeah, congrats. And, and the fact of making that switch, I know we, we all know this, and it's, it's something that we've talked about, is the, is the making a switch for, for anything is, is hard for anyone because it's change and you're ta- making, taking a risk and you have faith that things are going to work out, but also being, being blind. And again, we... I think all three of us are in agreement here that we're we're trying to we all believe in inclusivity and having uh, more opportunities for blind people and that we can do more sometimes than society might believe. But at the same point, it is more difficult and we can't it's hard to ignore that fact that just picking up some sort of random job is is hard to do. So to leave a secure position like that is a, is a big risk. But at the same point, I think that's also a, a great way to live life is to try new things and don't just sort of fall into the groove of doing the same thing over and over. If, if you're looking for change or if you're looking for, for something new, I think it's, I think it's worth it because we only live once and we, we want to know what, what, what is out there for us. And I think that's just such a great mix of experiences that you, that you highlight there. Yeah, do we, do we that... actually live only once? <laughs> Sorry, Laura, I thought maybe you, I assume no. you, you covered a, lo- a lot of different subjects as reported there at AMI. I thought maybe you found something else about this that we didn't know. Well, that is that is actually whenever I say that or I hear that expression, we only live once. It's something that that I also call into question, and nice. and I don't quite have the answer for that. Unfortunately, <laughs> maybe if I had done my undergraduate degree in comparative religion, but <laughs> yeah. um, my personal belief is perhaps that we do live more than than once. But I think that the point of that statement is that you need to take it, or you should take as much advantage of this lifetime. But we can't know now. Can. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's certainly a tension that I have have struggled to navigate my entire life. Um, as you mentioned, Brian, between that sort of statistic that you always hear about unemployment in the blind community um, and that sort of fear, and I would say that fear has kept me um, in 
in jobs for a prolonged period of time, like particularly when I was working at, at the bank for, for five years, is that you know that you can't just necessarily um, leave and, and go work at a coffee shop or leave and go, go work in retail. Um, but also feeling that desire to, to pursue my dreams um, and to not just kind of, um, not just kind of stay in one place. So I feel like it's really been a, a journey over, over my 36 years of living to, to de- develop that confidence in myself um, and to come to a point where I, I, was, I am not willing to be controlled by the fear of, of being unemployed or, or maybe having to be on income assistance for a period of time. But to say that, I think it's worth it to, uh, to take the leap and to, to try to figure out what it is that is going to give me the, the strongest sense of, of purpose. Yeah, I actually like asking the uh, guests as an interview interviewer what someone's dream is or would be because I think a lot of things in life do hold us down from those things. You know, you can't always just go out and, you know, you know, do whatever you want, obviously, as, as far as dreams go. But to hear about what people's dreams are, because a lot of things like fear, um, I know, stand in my way a lot uh, of actually doing what it would be considered my dream things um, on a list. And so I like to ask our guests. So, yeah, thanks for sort of pointing that out already in your answer, because um, who knows where this will lead you, this new opportunity you're about to take on in September. But um, let's talk a bit more about AMI first, and then we'll kind of finish off in the summer of 2021. <laughs> um, what was it like then? You said you didn't have a, a, any kind of education really in broadcasting. So what was it like the first while on the job? Um, there was a lot of fake it till you make it, I would say. Um, you know, uh, it was all new for me being on camera. I would say there was like a certain amount of novelty of being on television, but I sort of immediately connected with the aspects of the job that, that were in alignment with me. And I would say that was um, connecting with, with guests and doing the interviews um, have always really been the driver for me of, of the enjoyment I found in that job. Um, I took the responsibility very seriously of having a broad understanding to the extent that I, I could about, um, you know, the various disability communities and about the, the issues and the debates within those communities. So um, during my time at AMI, I spent a lot of time, um, you know, learning about, about different things I didn't know about before and, and reading different articles and, 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 you know, following different disability influences who are, are out there making content. And um, so that was a, a big part of it for me. Um, you know, it was a privilege to have an opportunity at times to help people have a platform to share their stories and to kind of both in asking the right interview questions and also in doing the, the post, well, the pre and the post-production on the stories, making sure that, that what, you know, that it came through in an authentic way that repre- represented that person and, and what they were doing. So, yeah, I mean, we can talk about, I did all kinds of, of, you know, interesting things on the job. I, I repelled down the side of a 30-story office tower, and I tried circus school, and I paddled a hollowed-out 1,200-pound pumpkin across the river because, you know, part of the stories we did See, were that like one I, tries. Yeah, that one, I, that one I would love to do. <laughs> yeah, so there was a lot of fun experiences like that. Um, the on-camera parts of it were never my favorite part of it, although I would say that I got more used to that and became more comfortable on camera. 
Um, but it was always the storytelling, the finding those stories, the interviewing the guests, and then and then shaping those stories. That was was my favorite part of it. You know, those skills certainly developed. So so yes, you know, when I look back at some of those old stories, I cringe for sure because I didn't have the skills in terms of delivering voiceovers or being on camera. Um, and and those skills developed over the five over the five years. And I think that's the case with anything. If you uh, you can't expect to be great at it when you're when you're first trying it, but um, like you you get better over time, right? Yeah, I feel like so many jobs are actually like that. Even if you have had training, like for me going to, to music industry arts here in London was you gain, make connections, you learn things, but really it comes down to actually getting out there and doing something. And that's where you really figure things out. And it's like me, you know, going on the radio. I didn't have any experience being on the radio before. I just sort of went for it. And 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 that's really what it's all about, I think. And I just wanted to read your, your Twitter um, headline on air because I think it, it sums you up really well. Um, it says partially blind and partially cool adventurer, philosopher, broadcast presenter, and I'm not too sure about the partially cool. Maybe you're a li- little cooler than that, but um, the adventurer part really stands out because you do seem like a very adventurous person who goes for so many things and tries just about anything. And maybe to talk to briefly about a couple things that you've done. I know even recently, since AMI, you you had. Uh, some training for a theater debut so maybe talk just briefly about all that because I find that interesting yeah sure and I think that's a part of myself and my personality that I've I've become more confident in the the last decade and sort of discovered um I will say I think role models are incredibly important um Eric Weinmeier was a huge role model for me he's the uh, blind guy who climbed Mount Everest is sort of what he's known for but um and, that, and that's because growing up, I just didn't know that those things were possible. I, I had this interest in adventure. I thought I was the type of person who would like travel and hiking and camping and, and being physically active. But I just, I didn't necessarily have those role models. So, you know, it's not about being inspired by this sort of, you know, the super blind or whatever, but it's that I needed to see that to, to know that it was something that was possible for me. So, so about a decade ago, I started exploring a lot more of that stuff. I started, um, as I say, just, just getting out more, trying some more parasports, trying um, just the things I wanted to do, just just sort of, you know, exploring the idea that it, it might be possible to do them. I, I've gotten to do quite a bit of travel, um, particularly independent travel over the last couple of years. Um, and I promise I will get to the theater thing. I will say um, probably, you know, one of the experiences that has shaped me most in my adult life was that I took an independent trip to New York for a week where I was there by myself. And that was the most terrifying and most rewarding thing I've, I've ever done, um, which maybe sounds like very average for someone who's non-disabled, but, but when you're, you know, you're, you're legally blind and, and you're doing that and you just, you just don't have experience with it. It's, uh, yeah. It's like climbing a mountain, you know, it, it is like climbing a mountain. So, um, yeah, so, so kind of along that, that same lines, I had never done professional theater. I would say it's something that I probably always had an interest in, but maybe didn't have the confidence to do. Um, so I saw a posting earlier this year, um, de- December or January of, of 2020, well, January, 2021, let's say, um, a local theater company, a professional theater company that was um, looking for someone who was a member of the blind or partially sighted community to, uh, to be cast in a role. Um, it was a full-time uh, professional production. So it would mean taking almost a two month leap of absence from my job in order to do that. And I just felt really excited about it. Um, I had that little feeling in my gut. So uh, I was, I was excited and scared, which is always the magic sauce for me for doing things. So I, uh, 
I put in my application, you know, I, I didn't have headshots. I, I didn't know any of the lingo. Um, and I, I had an audition. I was cast in the part, which led to, uh, to me getting approved to take a leave of absence for my job, which I was very fortunate to get that approved. And then, um, and then doing that for a month and a half. Um, and we had seven sold out shows uh, scheduled. And on opening night, we went into the third wave of pandemic lockdown. <laughs> so our shows did not, uh, did not uh. go ahead. Um, but I will say it was still an, an amazing growth experience for me um, despite that. And, and hopefully at some point the show will be remounted, probably um, not until next year, but uh, you know, hopefully I would, I would love the opportunity to present that role to the public. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was I was crushed when I saw that post on Facebook because I saw a few of your posts there that you were I could tell you were so excited about this and then you know it's something we've all dealt with during these times having to look forward to things and then them not happening but yeah at least like you say in the future hopefully that will come to fruition because that sounds like a really neat opportunity. Yeah, it definitely was. I have a lot of gratitude to the theater company who certainly it would have been easier for them to cast a sighted, experienced actor um, in the role. Um, I think it also would have been easier for them to cast an experienced blind actor in the role, but um, they, they weren't able to identify someone. So they chose to cast me a non-experienced partially sighted actor in the role, um, which meant a lot of work on both of our part. You know, I had, I had tears on day one because um, they kept telling me to go upstage and downstage. And I finally just had to say, I have no idea what that means. I do not, <laughs> you know? Um, so it was, uh, it was, it was a learning experience. Um, Mm-hmm. But one that I'm very grateful for, and I, I think has has, uh, I think it's good to to do difficult things, and it's it's good to push yourself. It was scary for me. Like my mom always says, you have no fear. I will say, yeah, I, I was I had a lot of fear, but I I felt that it was was worth it, and it's uh, it's still a good thing to do. You face your fears. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to sort of face. I mean, you know, don't go doing something reckless, but right. yeah. Uh, it's, it's good, to, it's good to face your fears, right? Go it's, fight it's a bear. But... That you, yeah, it's good to do things that you're not 100% certain you'll be successful at. I mean, maybe somebody wants to fight a bear, but... Uh, yeah, not me. Um, but yeah. Not me. <laughs> yeah. Not here. Not you, not you, Laura. All right. So yeah. for anyone who's just tuned in, we're wrapping up here. We only have a minute or so left here. One or two minutes. Obviously, time flies by. We're speaking with Laura Bain from Halifax former Accessible Media Incorporated reporter, moving on now to study social work. We are congratulating her for that change and all the best in the future. How are you enjoying the summer then before you start in September? Just briefly, I um, again, thank you for coming on, talking to us about just not just AMI, but uh, everything you've done in your life, because that Twitter does describe you well, very nicely written. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I have to confess, I haven't updated that in about a decade. So maybe I'm more <laughs> blind and, and who knows, maybe even more cool than I used to be. But um, uh, okay, I really thank you guys for having me on and for this opportunity. I was worried about talking for an hour, but geez, I feel like you guys have had to kind of rein me in. I could, could talk for another hour, but... Um, so could we. I, I am, yeah, I'm, I'm really just taking this time. I, I've chosen to give myself the gift of leaving my job early. I could have worked until the end of the summer, but I... I chose to leave at the end of June so I could have a nice. little bit of time to reset before taking on this new challenge. So, so that's what I'm doing. I'm focusing on my physical and me- uh, mental, emotional health and just having a little bit of, a little bit of fun and a few adventures before buckling down to school in September. Awesome. Well, I don't know a lot about being out there on the East coast, but I do hope you have a lot of dry, hot, warm days and less of the humid ones and that <laughs> you, um, 
you know, get all you want to get in your new experience in the fall and beyond. So congratulations again and the best of luck and we'll check in with you maybe sometime. Yeah. We'd love to have you yeah, on again in the future luck, and, and uh, reminisce about more memories from 20 years ago. It's funny to think back. So yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for coming on the show. Who knows what you've got on some of those recordings, Brian, you'll have to dig through them a little deeper, but <laughs> um, thanks a lot guys. It's been great. Send us an email, outlookonradiowestern at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash OutlookOnRadioWestern. Western.